All right, guys, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson, and I'm very excited to have my guest today, Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel, welcome back. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Siegel, as many of you I'm sure know, is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindfulness Awareness Research Center at UCLA. Dr. Siegel is executive director of the Mindsight Institute, an educational organization which offers online learning and in-person seminars that focus on how the development of mindsight in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. Today, I um, uh, brought him back specifically to talk about this new book, Aware of the Science and Practice of Presence. So uh, welcome back to, once again, to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start out here. Why did you write this book? You know, I wrote this book because there were so many ways that integrating consciousness uh, helps people's lives, whether they've been traumatized or dealing with issues of anxiety or just being alive on the planet. Um, this capacity to take these two ideas, integration is health and consciousness is needed for change and bring them together into one practice called the wheel of awareness. It was helping so many people. I did it with a lot of people in workshops, 10,000 people yeah. and recorded the results when people would share what it was like. And I just uh, felt it was good to make it available to people both on our website as a practice, but then as a book saying what I thought was going on and how to do the wheel as a practice. So it's a very practical guide to doing a reflective practice that can really improve your life in lots of ways. So that's why I wrote it. One of my, uh, I guess, attractions to your work, you know, obviously you, you address therapists and therapy. This, this particular book, um, Aware, you know, what it means to cultivate awareness, why is that important, why is presence important, and how it uh, applies to therapists, and even, even trauma in this book. What's been your, before we kind of dive into specifics, what's been your attraction to, to therapy and therapists? What is, and because I know in your, in your former work, previous works, you've uh, addressed that, those issues also. What's been my attraction to therapy and therapists? You yeah. Mean, uh, attraction like in personally, like why I'm interested, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, well, I guess what I would say, it's an interesting question, Guy. You know, <clears throat> I think in my own personal journey, uh, learning to respect um, the internal experience of each individual, you know, sometimes it's called subjectivity or the mind, uh, your feelings, you know, the meaning of things for you. I think from a young age that became very clear that was really important to do. And then as a, a, a college student, uh, I studied um, biochemistry, but at the same time I was working on a suicide prevention service where I learned that when someone was calling in a crisis and you were on the other end of the line, the way you tuned into their internal state, the way you were empathic and resonating with their inner experience could make the difference between someone lived or died. And so as a young, as a, you know, an adolescent, I was 19 at the time, it was like, um, 
whoa, you know, the mind is like really, really important. In fact, life and death important. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I was in medical school and that was absent and I dropped out for a while, I talk all about this in a book called Mind, um, you know, uh, it, it became really clear that you could have a whole profession, medicine, you know, which was ignoring subjective experience, at least the way I was being taught. And so I made up this word mind sight for how we have a perceptual system to see the mind. Um, and then when I went back to school and ultimately decided to become first a pediatrician, then a psychiatrist, um, mind sight, seeing the mind, seeing the internal subjective experience of others remained this kind of central theme. And so I, um, when I was trained as a therapist, that became a, you know, an organizing principle for me. Uh, and mindsight includes insight into oneself, empathy for others, and the cultivation of integration, these three things. So everything I've been doing, you know, since that time of the early 80s, when I became a therapist, um, was to try to understand clinically how that could be helpful, personally in my own life, with my children, my wife, and, you know, friends, family, how mindsight was a central thing to well-being. Then as a scientist, you know, I really wanted to understand the nature of the mind and what the mind is and how to cultivate a healthy mind. So, you know, in the last 25 years, that's basically what I've been doing with this field called interpersonal neurobiology, where we bring all the fields of science together. And I guess my attraction to therapy is because I am a therapist, you know, and uh, I feel very devoted to our field of mental health. But I was embarrassed, quite honestly, about how the field of mental health doesn't define the mental and without defining the mind, the mental, how in the world can you define what a healthy mind is if you haven't said what the mind is? So it's been kind of a scientific mission of mine to very conservatively try to define the mind, say what a healthy mind is, look at things, for example, like trauma, and say, how does trauma impair the mind, realizing that the mind is broader than the brain and bigger than the body. It's a relational and fully embodied process. And so that's, as a scientist, that's been, you know, a big journey just to, you know, weave my way through the different academic halls and, you know, combine everything from math and physics to, you know, psychology and anthropology into one framework. So that gets a lot of people agitated, but to try to stay conservative about it. And then with the AWARE book, what's been really, really fascinating is, you know, to come up with a, a, a proposal. It might be completely wrong, but it could be right, and um, about the origin of consciousness. So in the AWARE book, you know, it's not only learning the wheel of awareness, but you hear about this, what I call 3P framework, this 3P proposal of um, looking at energy patterns as a, a manifestation of where you are on a probability curve, and then mapping out basically all mental processes, including consciousness, onto this diagram, and I was just teaching just yesterday at this conference where you have these very sophisticated um, consciousness students and they went wild over this proposal because it's different, uh, but it fits. You know, it fits different contemplative traditions, different religious traditions, different spiritual traditions, and it certainly fits well with what we do in psychotherapy. So that's a long answer to a short question, Guy, but. It brings us to the, the trauma work that, that is so important for us to do and looking at 
how the mind can grow by cultivating an integration of consciousness is what I hope the Aware book will really make available to everybody. In, in the book, you talk about this, uh, the wheel of awareness. Let's talk about that. Um, yeah. I really appreciated that. It, it, it seemed to, for me, give me a, uh, a it, felt, it, felt, it felt really very, very, very grounding for me uh, to, to situate or to embark on a contemplative practice, if you will. But let's talk a little bit about that and then get into its implications for therapists and clients and then trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's really quite simple. I mean, I could even, might be fun while there are people working out there. You know, it's a table <laughs> just through this wall over here. It might be fun. Let me see if I can do it. Okay. Um, don't, don't get oh, oh, I can't. I'm plugged into, I'm plugged into the wire. You can okay. kind of do there. It's, you can't yeah. But anyway, yeah, there's a table in our office here that's the shape mm -hmm. of a wheel. And, uh, you know, when I designed the table in the, in the 90s, it was just for feng shui purposes of, you know, walking in an office. I wanted people to see the edge of this table, which is wood, and the center, which is glass, and that you could, with your eyes, get a feeling like, okay, in this therapy session, you're going to start at one surface level, and then you're going to go deep, you know? So that was kind of the idea I have when I designed the table. But as, you know, I was getting ready to uh, publish The Developing Mind, uh, the, my first book, it, it was... It was clear that integration was a unifying um, process that could look at health inside your brain, inside the whole body, inside a one-on-one -on -one relationship or a family or a classroom or a school or a city or, you know, it just could go out and out even to our entire planet. Um, so I thought as a therapist, well, you know, what if you could take that consilium finding, consilience just means it's a common finding across different disciplines, even if they don't say it directly, but you kind of look for the similarities. Um, and the second issue was that every form of therapy seems to involve consciousness, and parenting involves consciousness, education in a classroom involves consciousness. So then there was the interesting notion that intentional change requires consciousness. So that was just really interesting. So then if you put those together, you say, well, how would it be if you integrated consciousness? Now, integration is, are things being different and then linked? And consciousness is the subjective experience of knowing and that which is known. So I walked my patients and, you know, over to the table from the couch or the chair, and I said, okay, let's integrate consciousness. So, of course, they roll their eyes because I say weird things and they're some <laughs> an odd person. But anyway, so they said, what are you talking about, you know? And I said, well, if you differentiate the knowing and let's put it in the hub of this table, this wheel, we'll call it, uh, and differentiate that from the rim, the rim would be all the knowns, like the first segment of the rim would be, you know, the first five senses that bring in energy patterns from outside the body, like sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Then you move this spoke of attention, this spoke is like something holding up the table, and you move that over to the second segment of the rim, which is the segment that represents the interior of the body, called the sixth sense in science. So it's muscles and bones, the sensations of muscles and bones, the, the genitals, the interior organs. And then you do that, and then you move the spoke over to the third segment of the rim, that is the segment that contains um, all of our mental activities like 
emotions and thoughts and images and memories, as well as other things that we're all familiar with, hopes, dreams, longings, desires, intentions. All that stuff we'll just label mental activities. And then you move the smoke over yet again to the fourth and final segment of the rim. And just to keep numbers going, I labeled awareness of mental activities as the seventh sense. And now we're gonna label this fourth and final segment, the eighth sense, our relational sense, sense of our connection to each other, yours and mine guy right now, or to anyone listening to us, or to the whole planet. And then it became a really interesting exercise with my patients to try bending the spoke around right into the hub, or you know, later on in workshops, people would suggest retracting the spoke or just leaving the spoke in or no spoke at all. The idea is to have a hub and hub experience. And that was just absolutely startling that people would get a feeling of timelessness, of you know, eternity, they'd feel infinity connected to everything, they'd feel the sense of emptiness and fullness all at the same time, they'd feel this sense of love, some, for some it was God, this sense of incredible joy, um, kind of being at home, um, really fascinating. And so I did it systematically in workshops once my students who are therapists found it helpful and their clients found it helpful. I started doing workshops systematically, took a recorder, 10,000 people, when they would take the microphone, you know, I just would listen to their response. So then the question is, what is going on? And that we can talk about, but that's basically what the wheel of awareness is. And people would reduce anxiety, they could help them with trauma, mild to moderate depression would go lower. If they had a medical illness, it would help them face those illnesses with more equanimity. Um, it was really quite, it is, I mean, I just did this weekend at this conference. It's just always like, amazing to me, even though I've done this now with way over 10,000 people, because I just stopped to study, but um, a while ago, you know, I've done it with, I don't know, like over 40,000 people now. And it's my students, when they come to me, they just shake their head, they go, no one is gonna believe you that in every workshop, people say exactly the same thing, these profound transformations of identity and all this kind of stuff, just doing this 30 minute practice. So I do it every day and it's a, it's a wonderful practice. So you, you, the, the wheel of awareness here, why is it helpful? I mean, for me personally, it, I found it, as I said, grounding to uh, allow myself to, to bring awareness to these specific areas. That felt almost, as kind of, I kind of feel weird saying this, but it almost felt empowering. Yeah. What did, what did you find that people were saying, why was it so helpful for, for people? Well, Guy, could, would you be okay sharing what the feeling of empowering, say, can you say a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've done meditation in really for, for a while, uh, what I would guess would call mindfulness meditation. And what I really appreciated, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but what I found um, uh, especially grounding is that, you know, when I look at the, the wheel of awareness, I'm just going to hold this up so people... There it is. There's the table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's well, my daughter I, Maddie's drawings too. Oh, nice. What I found um, empowering is that, okay, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm going to recognize my first five senses. What does that mean? You know, to stop and to, and to just to stop and to focus on or, and to isolate each of those sen senses is... It's a, it, allows, it allowed me to say, wait a minute, I can do this. 
I'm doing this. And I felt like I was appreciating my senses more. And then as I moved around, yeah. yeah, and then as I moved around that, that rim, again, it allowed me to say, okay, now I'm going to focus on my somatic awareness. What does that mean? And then integrating, you know, interpersonally or with therapeutic relationship, that to me felt very empowering. And it, it felt like, okay, I can develop this even further. So oh, that yeah. to me was exciting. So anyway, that was my personal experience. Well, that's really beautiful to hear that guy. And you know, the, the um, I think the empowerment word is really, I think an important thing you're noting because there is something, you know, in everyday life, um, just to keep the wheel metaphor as our central focus, people are lost on the rim. And I think the first thing the wheel does, it does so many things, but let's start with, I think the first thing is it empowers you to say, I can come from the hub and choose where to, from this place of awareness with intention, choose where to focus my attention. So you've, we've just taken three of the core aspects of mind, awareness, the sense of knowing, intention, the directionality of where your energy flow is gonna go, you're kind of setting the directions, like priming the mind, and attention is actually streaming that energy in a particular way. So it's literally empowering you, the power of your mind to know, that's awareness, to set the directionality, that's intention, and to actually stream that energy, that's attention. You know, you are just in the first segment already going, right, right. whoa. I'm not just, you know, going to be a passive participant here. I'm really an active participant and it kind of wakes people up just this first segment. Right. right? So you go, you know, then you say hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. It sounds so simple, but number one, it builds on what research suggests is an important pillar focused attention because you're doing one at a time. But then when you say, okay, you know something now I'm intending to take, my attention using my awareness over to the bodily sensations and then you again become empowered by systematically moving them around you know and so you now explore the different sensations of the body and this whole process obviously you go around to mental activities then then relational sense and we can talk about what it's like the bend spoke for you but what it what it does is it distinguishes, that is, differentiates just means to clarify the differences. That's what, I know the differentiation word, people sometimes don't relate to it, but it's just to distinguish or, or let the differences be honored. I mean, that's what all mm -hmm. it means. So when you're, you're doing this simple 30-minute practice, you are profoundly, not only empowering you for awareness, intention, and attention, which is like, fantastic you're now distinguishing the knowing in the hub from the knowns on the rim even before you bend that spoke around and mm -hmm. explore the hub itself so this is actually uh, it's it's it, it, i, I want to curb my enthusiasm because i'm so excited about this but this simple distinction of knowing from known with a visual image of it that makes you know five will be able to use it as you can see in the book i talk about billy have 
moment in our evolution as in humanity to say, wow, if people can learn to drop out of their destructive impulse or tendencies, which unfortunately, yeah. So just this weekend, you know, Robert Sapolsky is one of the speakers and he really made it clear that even rats make a distinction between who's, who do they consider uh, people, their cage mates, who they, who's their in-group basically. We've had this as mammals for a long time. For sure in primates for 50 million years, we've been actually destructive towards those we label as the out-group. Um, so as humans, we have this specialty for genocide. So part of, I think, what we need to do in just looking at all trauma, but also just the trauma of literally being a human on this planet and seeing what societies do with racial attacks. I mean, just look what happened in Pittsburgh just a, you know, a few days ago. We're at a moment now where if we don't wake up as a humanity to go beyond just these imp impulses that come from implicit racial and uh, all sorts of biases that we have, um, we're just going to kill each other and we're going to kill the planet because we, we treat the natural world as if it was foreign and an outgroup and basically treat Earth like a trash can. So these questions are, yes, about individual trauma, how you can learn to heal all the elements of the rim that are in a way chaotic and rigid, and we can talk about that. But reaching toward this hub of the wheel is also a source of empowerment to rise above the proclivities that we've inherited from our mammalian history for in-group, out-group distinctions and for the violence that goes along with being a primate, right? We're an incredibly violent species. So, you know, we're violent towards each other, we're violent in families, we're violent towards the planet. Um, we also have this incredibly positive capacity, but we have to do everything we can in the field of mental health and education and parenting to really allow people to rise above the tendencies that humanity has to actually be destructive. And I think we can be incredibly um, empathic and compassionate, uh, but we have to rise above the fear that um, keeps on uh, dividing everyone, fracturing people. And so you get terror, really tears us apart. Right, right. Passion and love bring us together. And so this is a, a moment in human history that these issues like of the wheel of awareness are not just always in that kind of interesting. It's, it's really a moment where we have to wake people up to become empowered in these ways. How does this, uh... Uh, apply what are the implications here for therapists in general and 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 for trauma therapists in, in particular well the first thing to say you know is when you look at the nature of trauma uh, one of the things that comes up and and I can speak both as an attachment researcher about trauma but also um, just from someone in interpersonal neurobiology looking at across different disciplines, not just attachment research. But one of the things that we know about trauma, and, and of course, for, as from an attachment point of view, we talk about something called developmental trauma, which is abuse and neglect, um, is that it is an assault on the growth of the individual toward integration. So integration is honoring differences, promoting linkages, and abuse would be an example where there is not an honoring of differences, and instead there's an invasion into the child, whether it's sexual abuse or physical abuse or you know, emotional abuse or verbal abuse. They're kind of these assaults and a violation of 
differentiation. Whereas, um, you know, in neglect, it's massive assault on linkage. There's just no linkage at all. And the child is too differentiated. So you can see that both abuse and neglect, these developmental traumas, are both examples of relational impairments to relational integration. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, if you look at the work of Marty Teicher and others, the main effect of those developmental assaults, developmental trauma, on the brain are to impair integration of the brain. So structures you probably know about, the, the hippocampus that links widely separated memory systems to each other, the corpus callosum that links the differentiated left and right hemisphere to each other, the prefrontal cortex that's linking the cortex, middle limbic areas, lower brainstem areas, body and the social world. So five mm-hmm. energy and information flow sources are coordinated and balanced through the prefrontal cortex. And then the more recent studies are of what's called the connectome. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so a connectome is the word connect with O-M-E at the end. And uh, sorry about the sneeze. And then uh, the, the, uh, the interconnections of the connectome are compromised with developmental trauma. So interestingly, if you look at three-pillar mind training, which means three pillars are focused attention, which just fortunately happen on the first two segments of the rim. Open awareness is the second pillar. You do this in the third segment of the rim and bending the spoke around. And kind intention is what I call it, or compassion training. That's the third pillar, and that's our fourth segment of the rim. All three pillars are embedded in this one practice called the wheel of awareness. Well, what happens when you research these three pillar trainings, because they usually overlap in some way, so I'll just call it three pillar training. Some people would call it mindfulness and compassion. Some people say it was just mindfulness. Some people wouldn't use any of those words. They would just say it's meditation. Different people use different words. We'll just call it three pillar training to be specific. Focused attention, open awareness, kind intention, all embedded in the wheel. Three pillar training grows the hippocampus, corpus callosum, prefrontal cortex, and a connectome. So what we don't have yet are studies of people who've experienced developmental trauma where those are compromised, give them three-pillar mind training and see if you can grow those areas of the brain. So that would be a fantastic PhD thesis someone could do. Mm-hmm. And, and my sense, having worked, you know, like many of us in the trauma field for decades, when I see the healing that comes from the massive chaos and rigidity of the person's life before they started treatment, then we find out that trauma is one of their main issues. We do the trauma work, and for me, it includes the wheel practice. And then I see how all that chaos or rigidity begins to melt away, and they have developed this new thing. I'm not doing brain scans on my patients, but I would bet you if someone did this in a double-blind control way, I'll bet you you would find that people with developmental trauma where the hippocampus, the corpus callosum, the prefrontal cortex, and the connectome are all compromised in their growth because of adult neuroplasticity. We can take them, well, as children, adolescents, or adults, but I'm saying it's not over. You can do the work, and I'll bet you research in the future will find those four ways you can grow an integrated brain. And amazingly, an integrated brain is the basis of a regulated brain. So regulating attention, emotion, mood, thought, memory, behavior, morality, and relationality, all those depend on integration in the brain. And so we're in this moment to say, okay, got it. 
Integration of the brain is optimal regulation. Trauma is a compromise to integration, therefore a compromise to regulation. So do some mind training practices in addition to your excellent psychotherapy so that people are getting between session work with regular reflective practices that you can do as an exercise. So what I say to people is, you know, do the work in therapy, sure, but why not also do the work every day? You can't go to see your therapist every day. Some people do. So I I just feel like we're in an exciting moment in in the field of mental health to say, if integration is impaired in trauma and three-pillar training grows integration in the brain, hey, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a no-brainer, but it's like, (laughs) let's go have people integrate their brains, you know? So in, in the book, you um, highlight a particular client, and I think, who had developmental trauma, and you talk about the, her work with the Wheel of Awareness. And correct me if I'm wrong, but initially, uh, and I'm sure generally with a lot of people who experience trauma, there can be a hesitation to you know, do some cognitive work, implicit memories come up, triggers come up. Talk a little bit about how that's handled in working with the Wheel of Awareness. Yes. So <clears throat> the first thing to say is, and Willie B. Britton, I think, talks about this very powerfully, you know, any kind of mind training practice called meditation can bring up um, s- certain, you know, uh, distressful experiences for anyone, um, including people who have been traumatized, but not just people who are traumatized. So being aware of that is important. And so I try to highlight that them in the where book by giving specific examples of people who had those experiences and how we dealt with them. So, um, so let's start with, let's talk about Teresa, who I call her. Um, so she had developmental trauma and she, like many people, you know, when they do any kind of meditative practice, when they do the internal focus on the body, um, it can bring up a lot of anxiety, sometimes panic. So um, let's talk about just the mechanism there. If you are, Focusing attention, let's say, on a simple thing that's a very common meditative beginner's place, the breath, and you've had sexual assault, either as a child or an adolescent or an adult or whenever, and where someone was choking you, mm-hmm. that focusing your attention by bringing attention to the breath into awareness can lead to a sense of panic because it was your breath that was being cut short as you were being choked. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've had people, for example, who are in drowning accidents where, you know, doing a simple breath practice, you know, created unbelievable panic. But what we did in the therapeutic setting is recognize that anything that creates chaos or rigidity, panic being an example of chaos, you know, tells you something is not integrated in that moment. That's the, the basic way I think as therapists we need to think about it. So then it's a red flag saying, oh, I see. Focusing on the breath is an issue. For the patient I had where it was drowning, that's what came up. For patients I've had who've been you know, sexually assaulted as children, you know, someone was holding their neck. And, and so then we have to do the therapeutic work around that for them to feel comfortable going through a body scan. And obviously you can come to other parts of the body, you know, like the genitals, that have uh, can have that as well and depending on the individual it can be the mouth all sorts of associations are made between bodily sensations 
and feeling overwhelmed and betrayed. So Jennifer Fried's excellent work on you know, betrayal trauma, meaning trauma that's associated with someone you're supposed to trust mm-hmm. has a different kind of dynamic. And then we have this thing called betrayal blindness, where when we try to make sure we are not aware of uh, that, and her work is really excellent in, in looking at um, these issues. And so a child or an adolescent faced with a caregiver being the source of this terrifying experience has a whole nother set of things. So these bodily sensations can just be the first clue that something perhaps had gone on and perhaps not. You can't come to any conclusions. And I've heard too many therapists say, oh my God, you're focusing on your genitals, you're having a panic attack, you must have been sexually abused as a child. And that's just suggesting to them something that you have no idea. And to say it must have happened is an error. That's a Mm -hmm. clinical error to do that. But sadly, a lot of therapists do that. So you just want to say, I see you're having a distressful thing when we focus on the genitals. I don't know what that is. You don't know what that is. Let's just explore what that might be and just see what it's like to focus there. And so you would spend more time outside of the meditative practice working on that area. Another thing that can happen, um, and I talk a lot about this with Teresa, is um, when people get to the part of the practice when they're bending the spoke around and there's been a history of trauma, having awareness rest in awareness. Some people might call it awareness of awareness. Some people just call it resting in awareness. Um, Has the quality of profound openness, which also has a feeling of profound uncertainty. So when you look at this 3P model in the where book, you'll see how one possible proposal, one proposal about a possible notion of the origin of consciousness is that you have this uh, movement of energy from this plane of possibility up to actuality, because one, one way physicists say energy can be defined as the movement from possibility to actuality, and after the 10,000-person study, it looks, like, um, it looks like the knowing of the hub, this being aware, comes from this maximal uncertainty place, which is called the quantum vacuum or sea of potential from a physics point of view. In our diagram, it's called the plane of possibility. And if you've been traumatized, you tend to want to avoid uncertainty because uncertainty meant something bad was going to happen. So there's what we call a plateau, a kind of protective filtering layer that keeps you from dropping into pure uncertainty. So in the wheel practice, what can happen is that when people bend the spoke around, it isn't just that they say, oh, I couldn't do it because it's a hard step to do. They say, I had a panic attack. And that's just a sign that you want to explore that a little more, giving it lots of space. And so far in my own clinical practice, but also doing workshops now with all these people, when people in the, in the break come up to me and say, oh, I'm a trauma victim and I'm just working on my incest history and all this stuff and say, you know, if they need to leave, they can leave, but they've stayed. And so far, everyone who stayed uh, has had the experience where they've been able to move, even in a three-day workshop, from a panic reaction to the uncertainty of the hub to instead... I think what's happening is they're dropping beneath that plateau 
which said, don't go there, don't go there. Mm -hmm. Feeling the tranquility of this plane of possibility. And the fascinating thing is that the plane is not only a source of peace, but it's also a source of all the other options you have available to you. So I think what happens in trauma is we build these protective plateaus that prevent us from dropping into the spaciousness of the plane where you have a sense of being aware, you have a pause between impulse and action, you have this location of other options are there. And so in a way, trauma unfortunately can imprison people in blocking them from their own liberation. And so my experience with patients and with workshop participants has been that as they move beneath those protective filters, those plateaus, down into the plane, other options arise. And as one person said in a workshop, you know, I felt in pieces, but at peace. Mm. And that was just such a profound way of saying the pieces of herself that had been protective, keeping her from uncertainty, thinking it was bad, now could realize that the real meaning of uncertainty is freedom and possibility. And so that's how the wheel initially can take the experience of panic at a pure open awareness and transform it by liberating the individual from these plateaus that are protecting them into realizing the pathway towards healing requires integration and integration arises from this plane of possibility. So that's been just a really exciting aspect. There are other implications as well of, of this you know, notion that the plane of possibility may be the origin of consciousness that involve things like realizing that's where we're all connected. And so true connection that sometimes people have gone through trauma don't experience, they feel very alone. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I experience as a clinician is when I'm working with someone who's been traumatized who feels I can feel that separation from my plane of possibility, I can tune into theirs. And that's where we meet each other because the infinity of each of our planes of possibility are the same. So we're different on these plateaus and peaks, you know, the, the rim stuff, but our hubs are the same. And so that's where, when you can feel that no kind of trauma ever, ever, ever can take that hub away, can take that plane of possibility away, you know, this deep source of liberation, however blocked it is from a person's own attempts to protect themselves from the horrible things that they had to endure and their way of surviving, you know that is deeply inside them. I mean, that, I don't think there could be a more hopeful statement than, than that statement. And I think that's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty empowering. So if, if, I mean, this, you know, I'm reading this book and this is, this is intense. I mean, there's so, we're talking, you're talking about so many different issues here. There are so many different spokes on, on the proverbial wheel that are going out to so many different topics. Yeah. How does, how can uh, a therapist learn about this? I mean, you, you, you mentioned workshops. Are you offering workshops in this? How do we learn about this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, a couple of things. Number one, of course, it's always good to do direct experience. So come to our website and try the wheel out for yourself. You know just to really see, how does that feel for me? And you may say, it's not my cup of tea, and that's fine. Um, you know, number two, you know, if you like visual things, we have a number of, you know, um, fun videos on the, um, 
on our website that you can just do. And if you want to ready to dive in, you can of course get the book. And, you know, I wrote the book so that clinician or anyone could, you know, go step-by-step, step, learn the technique yourself. And then when you get to part two, you really dive into the mechanisms of mind that I think every therapist should know deeply about. Um, and then number three, you go back to some of the five cases you've heard in the beginning. And now with the new framework of the mechanisms of mind, you dive deeply, deeply, deeply into how those individuals were helped, how their mind transformed based on using the wheel. And then number four, part four, is you learn to bring it into your own life. So the book is kind of a self-contained educational experience. So that's a good way to start. You know, we have people doing book clubs as clinicians, and that's kind of a good way to do it as a group. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I do whatever. I mean, if you want to come in person, we have uh, workshops I'm doing at different places, 1440, other places. Um, so if you go to the events section of our website, you'll see all sorts of ways. And we have an online program. We have a 36-hour you know, certificate of completion oh, wow. you know, program. So if you want to learn not just the wheel, it's a really deep, deep wheel practice, you will get met. But if you want to like embed it in like learning how to apply interpersonal neurobiology from the ground up to psychotherapy, that's your course, you know? And, uh, yeah. So I spent a long time putting that together and, you know, we're, we're a little institute here, the Mindsight Institute, we're the brick and mortar home for interpersonal neurobiology. We have now over 70 textbooks that I've overseen the publication of in our, in our um, mental health uh, series with Norton. And um, it's an exciting moment. You know, those are books mostly other people have written. I've written a few of those. And, you know, the Aware book would be just an example of once you start doing it, at least what people tell me when they get through the end of the book, you are empowered and you do understand things in a different way that I think will be empowering for your clients and patients as well. Well, once again, uh, the book is Aware, the Science and Practice of uh, Presence. Um, Dr. Siegel, I want to thank you so much. It's uh, it's always enlightening and, and really inspiring to talk to you. Really appreciate you taking the time to be here. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. And together, we, the integrated self of me and we, we're going to make this a more integrated world. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.